Thank you for joining us for this chapel message from the campus of Columbia International University in Columbia, South Carolina. Our mission at CIU is to educate people from a biblical worldview to impact the nations with the message of Christ. Good morning. It's a joy for me to be here, and I've got some guests here that my wife invited, so welcome to you. The most important person here today is Lord Jesus. And thank you for worshiping him. I told Hayden, that's my favorite song, Revelation song. So it was a joy to me. But the second most important person here today is this lady you see on the screen. That's my wife. And this next picture is my favorite picture of her. We've been married for almost 45 years. And I love you. Would you pray with me? Father, we worship you today. And as I stand here this morning, I recognize that apart from you, there is nothing good in me, in any of us. And we just ask that today you would calm my heart as I share with these people what you have put on my heart, and I pray that your spirit would minister to us today. Because if he doesn't, it's just a waste of time. And so we look to you and ask for your provision in the name of the strong one we worship, Jesus. Amen. I've got a question or a couple questions for you. Has God ever delighted in you? Have you ever done something that God says, yes? Or have you ever done something like scoring the winning touchdown and the fans rush the field? Or perform so well that God stood for an encore? You might say these, these examples are absurd, absurd. And I agree with you because those don't really matter in terms of our obedience to God. But I want to talk about something that does delight the heart of God today. And as I've thought about things in my own life, there are two instances that based on the scripture that we're going to look at today that I know delighted the heart of God. One happened on June 4th, 1973. I grew up in a little town in North Dakota, and I'd been told my whole life that, Brian, you're a Christian, and when you die, you'll go to heaven. And I was riding in a car, I was 18 years old, and a guy named John was driving the car, and he explained to me the gospel in a way that I'd never heard. I knew that day that I was a sinner, and that I needed a savior. And so that day, I invited Jesus Christ to be my savior. And God did something for me that day 
that demonstrated his delight in my response to his grace. He gave me a, an image in my mind. <clears throat> there used to be a TV commercial for Mr. Clean, and it opens with a, a picture of this filthy house. Everything's just filthy. The lady is standing there. She's filthy, too. And it's like there is no hope for this house. And along the street comes a shining knight on a beautiful white horse. And he gets off his horse, and he opens up this little bottle, and a white tornado comes out and goes through that whole house and cleans it all up. And that house is gleaming. The lady is gleaming. And that's what came into my mind that day. I was that filthy house. And God cleaned me up. Well, the next day I raised my hand and said, I will obey the commander-in-chief and join the United States Navy. And it was like I was on this plane and God jerked me up. And then over the course of the next eight weeks, I kind of dwindled and I thought, who am I? And I lived like I was not a Christian. I went right back to the way I had been living before I became a Christian. And during that year and a half, between June 4th and November 11th of 1974, I gave up on being able to live the Christian life. I said, this does not work. I tried a couple times, it does not work, and so I gave up. I was assigned to a ship. We were down in South America. There was a group of Christians on that ship, and they invited me to Bible studies, and I went. And it, it was like God said to me, Brian, you need to turn your life over to me. And so that night I recognized again, I am a sinner, and I need a savior. I didn't get saved because I already was saved, although I dealt with that for a long time. But God changed my life then. And I am assured that God delighted in me those two days. I think he delights in us a lot more than that. But I want us to look at a passage of Scripture today that really highlights that. And I'm going to build on two passages or two messages that have already been shared. You remember Ainsley Vivian came yeah. <clears throat> and shared from her life using Psalm 32. And then Trevor Castor came and talked about identity. They talked about who we really are. Both of them really shared who we are in the core of our being. And so I want to talk about Psalm 51 today. Psalm 32 was written after Psalm 51. They're based on the same experience, and you know the story. The army goes out. David stays back in Jerusalem. He sees this beautiful lady. He lusts for her. He brings her into the palace. He has sexual relations with her. She gets pregnant. And he says, uh-oh, what do I do now? And so he sent to Joab, his general, and said, send Uriah, her husband, back. Uriah comes back. David gets him drunk, says, go be with your wife. Uriah refused to go be with his wife. 
And so David decided, well, he's just going to have to die then. And so he sent him back and had Joab put him at the front of the line, and Uriah was killed. And David thought, I've solved my problem. But sometime later, God sent Nathan to David. And Nathan said, you are a sinner. You're the man. He told a little story. And so David writes this psalm in response to that. And so I want to read it, but then I want to look at one particular verse. Psalm 51, for the choir director, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing heart, willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices in burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. <clears throat> what does David want? David wants to be free from the guilt of his sin. He's been hiding and now it's made known and he says, God, I cry out to you for mercy, for forgiveness, for cleansing. And he basically says, I will do anything, whatever is required, I will do to get that forgiveness from you. But verse 17 says that God desires a broken and a contrite heart. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. So the question then is, what is brokenness? What's a broken and a contrite heart? And why does God accept it? And why is it the proper response to our sin? Can it be like things that we have that are broken? What do you do when you have something that's broken? 
you throw it away. It can't be used anymore. So is that what God is talking about? What David is talking about? No, what God is looking for is for those with a proper understanding of themselves. He wants us to recognize who we really are. He wants us to understand why he created us and how we respond to that. He's actually saying, what he says to David is, David, you are obsessed with yourself. And he says the same to us. He wants us to recognize our own self-obsession. We do what we want to do. We do it for our own pleasure. Larry Crabb, who's a, a psychologist who wrote a lot of books, um, he's now with the Lord, but he puts brokenness this way. He says, brokenness is recognizing who I really am and how I seek to make my life meaningful. Brokenness is recognizing my bankruptcy and looking to God for mercy. And he suggests that we ask ourselves two questions. One is, what in my past did I believe made me feel really alive? And the second is, what in my past did I believe brought a feeling of death? And we could bring that into the present. What do I really believe has to happen in my life to make me feel really alive? For me, it's the Red Sox winning the World Series. <laughs> or a lot of other things. And on the other hand, what are those things that I face that make me feel like this is going to bring about death? What's really important to me? And so it's absolutely essential if we're going to live the Christian life the way God wants us to live it, that we understand who we are in our heart. Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And we might think, well, that's those people's hearts. But that's my heart. Mark 7, 20 through 23, Jesus says, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, Deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. All these things are a result of the self-obsession that abides within me, that abides within you. Now, we also have to recognize that God has redeemed us, those of us who have received Jesus Christ. And so we have to balance this. He has justified us. He has given us his righteousness. We are his children. He's adopted us. So he delights in us simply because of that. But if we don't also recognize our self-obsession, we will never fully grasp, grasp the depth of that. So I want us to do a little self-exploration. What is on your mind right now? What are you thinking about? Who are you most concerned about? 
You know, what's on my mind? My mind is on this chapel. In some sense, every chapel speaker is a performer. And so we want to do well. And so we think that way. I'm concerned about how well I'm going to do. Are you guys just going to turn me off? Are you guys going to listen? Are you going to leave here having uh, received something from the Lord? But you might be thinking, man, I'm hungry. I just want to get this thing over with and get to, get to the cafeteria. Or I got schoolwork to do. I got a paper due that I've got to write. And so aren't we always evaluating life in terms of my perspective? We have to expend great energy not to think selfishly. It's not a default for me. When I get in my car, I don't care about everybody else. I just want to get where I'm going. And I have to remind myself over and over and over, Brian, that's not the way to think. I need God's grace and power to love that beautiful woman the way God wants me to love her. I need God's grace to not eat the last helping of ice cream when someone else should get it. So brokenness shows up in our character flaws. It shows up in our lack of patience, our lack of joy, our lack of peace, our lack of hope. It shows up when we get impatient in the grocery store or when we don't show empathy toward people. So I'd like you to do an experiment for the next few days. I've actually been doing this experiment for 20 years, I think. Tomorrow when you wake up, after you wake up, ask yourself, what was my first thought this morning? There's been twice, I think, in my 20-year span of this experiment when I actually haven't thought about me. One time, the alarm was so loud, and I thought, I need to get that off before it wakes my wife up. I thought about her first. But every other day, except possibly one, I thought about me. Oh, it's too early to get up. It's cold outside, or it's hot outside, or I don't want to do whatever it is that I need to do today. <clears throat> so, you might think, well, that's not me, but test it and see. See if that's true for you. I'm broken. That's a reflection of my brokenness. I know it, and God knows it, but in reality, I don't want you to know it. What do we do when we sin and nobody knows? We hide. We don't want other people to know. Remember what Adam and Eve did? They sinned, and what did they do? They covered themselves. And then God came, and they hid in the trees. We don't want God to see us this way. And I don't want you to see me this way. And so what I want to encourage us today is to embrace our brokenness. It's going to be with us for the rest of our lives. We don't get over it. 
One day we will. We'll talk about that in a minute. But we need to embrace repentance. Sin requires repentance. And we think of repentance sometimes as what we did when we received Jesus Christ. But listen to what Gordon MacDonald says about repentance. He says, the practice of continuous repentance is a part of character development. It seems to me that the concept of repentance has been misunderstood and unfortunately applied to the occasional expression of deep regret over an unusually heinous sin. And of course, this is something that is occasionally called for. But in the larger sense, repentance is that regular, sincere acknowledgement of all that's broken within me and which needs fixing. I need to live in a constant state of repentance. There's numbers of scriptures that talk about God's perspective on our brokenness. In fact, he's not disgruntled with it. He doesn't say, oh, I can't believe these people are like that. Because he knows us. And he also sees into eternity. But think of the Beatitudes, the first Beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's where it starts. None of us bring anything to God when we come to him. And then in James chapter 4, James tells us, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into sorrow and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you at the proper time. We want to be exalted now. God says that's later. That's later. Live in humility now, recognizing who you really are. Think about the Apostle Paul. What was his perspective on himself? He is self-evaluated in his epistles. In 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he says that he is the least of the apostles. That's still pretty good. I mean, the apostles are still pretty well up there. Later in Ephesians, he says he is the least of all saints. He's come down a bit. And then in 1 Timothy 1, he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost of all. That was his evaluation of himself. And we need to do the same thing. We can compare each other to one another. I can compare myself to you and you to me. But that's not the comparison we need to make. Before God, I am the chief sinner. Nobody sins from my perspective, more than me, because I don't know all that, that you do. And yet think of all that Paul did, all that he accomplished for the kingdom. And we might say, well, he accomplished that in spite of his brokenness. No, I say he, he accomplished it in light of his brokenness. He understood who he was. He recognized that he needed God in order to do anything. In Romans chapter 7, he says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. So he said, I can't do anything. But, Philippians 4, he says, I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. I'm unstoppable in Christ. 
So our brokenness should not lead to discouragement or despair. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. God delights in those who recognize their brokenness. And it's not always going to be that way. 1 John 3 says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him just as he is. There's coming a time where your brokenness is going to be fixed. But as my good friend Rick Higgins says, that day is not going to come until you reach room temperature. So what's our needed response? The answer is that God will provide what we need. Romans 7, Paul writes, Who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus is our answer. Along with the Holy Spirit. But I say, walk in the Spirit and you will not carry out the deeds of the flesh. We need Jesus abiding in us, and we need to depend upon the Holy Spirit. We can live in the reality of Romans 8. So today I want us to consider this idea of brokenness. As Crabb says, brokenness is recognizing who I really am and how I seek to make my life meaningful. Brokenness is recognizing my bankruptcy and looking to God for mercy. I recognize that I'm obsessed with me. I encourage you to explore that for yourself. And then to repent that regular, sincere acknowledgement of all that's broken within me and which needs fixing. If we recognize that we were broken, we are broken, we will no longer depend upon ourselves. We will no longer evaluate our ability to accomplish anything on the basis of who we are. We will run to God for mercy and grace. And it also will provide us greater ability to minister to other people. Because acknowledging my brokenness keeps me from judging you. If I'm the chief of sinners, how can I judge you? It also should enable you to say, I can be who I am in your presence. We should be safe for one another. So getting back to our question, how important is it that God is delighted in you? <clears throat> when we live in obedience, we bring delight to the heart of God. But when we also live in our brokenness, we also bring delight to the heart of God.
And in reality, if we're going to live in obedience and dependence upon him, we've got to recognize our brokenness. As David wrote in Psalm 51, God desires truth in the innermost being. If you're lying to yourself, stop. Be real with yourself. So let's stop hiding. Let's embrace the reality of who we are and embrace God's mercy and grace. And we will bring delight to the heart of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you accept us just as we are. And then you work to make us more like Jesus. So I pray as we've looked at this psalm today that you would bring it to our reminder. Help us to see ourselves in truth and thank you that you also see us for who we will be. And we can come sit in your lap at any time and receive from you according to your goodness and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. hope you found this message a blessing to your life. More Columbia International University Chapel messages are available at iTunes and at podcast.ciu.edu. Learn more about CIU's undergraduate, seminary, and graduate programs at our website, ciu.edu. Columbia International University educates people from a biblical worldview to impact the nations with the message of Christ. Thank you for the opportunity to minister to you today.